Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is August the 10th, 2022, um, and the headlines are dominated by a certain tragic, perhaps, politician um, and industrialist, uh, Donald uh, Trump. Uh, it seems almost like a, a modern-day Greek tragedy, the story of a brilliant and industrious man whose greed and hubris took him from the top to one of the most wanted men, perhaps, in America. The FBI searched his house yesterday in uh, Florida, uh, both the Wall Street Journal and, uh, and the New York Times reports. Meanwhile, he is taking the Fifth Amendment in New York. Um, God knows what uh, the uh, investigators, Letitia James in New York, will find. Um, he's going to be deposed, according to the Wall Street Journal. It is, in many ways, has all the makings of a Greek tragedy. Uh, all the papers are obsessed with it. But we're not actually talking about uh, Trump today, uh, which is lucky because he gets very boring. Uh, we're talking about another Greek tragedy, a man called Carlos Gozen, who in many ways uh, might be Donald Trump before Trump. Um, uh, he's been described, uh, his rise and fall, as a modern-day Greek tragedy, the story of a brilliant and industrious man whose greed and hubris took him from the top of the global auto industry to Interpol's most wanted list. Um, he is a remarkable man, whether you love him or hate him, he's certainly remarkable. And his story has been summarized in a new book out today by two Wall Street Journal reporters, Nick Kostov and Sean McLean, called Boundless. And Nick is joining us from Paris. Nick, uh, sorry to bore you with Donald Trump, but are there any comparisons between Trump and Gozen? Um, are there any comparisons between Trump and Gozen? Yeah, actually, a little bit, I think. Um, I think, um, yeah, both of them have made it to the top. Both of them take a lot of risks. Um, both of them are very good at playing the media. Um, so, yeah, I think there's probably quite a few comparisons, yeah. Uh, well, one of the things, and again, I, I keep on saying this and then, of course, of talking Trump, but one of the yeah. other things about Trump and Gozen is they both mm -hmm. had very, very dodgy fathers. They're, Gozen's father was an accused murderer. I don't know if Fred Trump murdered anyone, but he was certainly a criminal. Uh, so certainly this, this dodginess, this Greek tragedy is in the family too, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, incredible story, which starts, you know, at the very beginning. And even before his, his father murdered anyone, he was born in the Amazon rainforest um, in a tiny little village called Portovello. You know, no paved roads. Um, and it's very rare for somebody from you know, the Amazon rainforest or who was born there to make it to the top of the business world. So even before we get to his father's story, um, his father allegedly had a, had a disagreement with a priest who he was kind of smuggling um, areas like diamonds and whatnot uh, across the border under the priest's cassock. Anyway, they had a disagreement. The priest ended up dead. Gordon's father got convicted um, of, of killing him. Um, and that was, you know, the start of Carlos Ghosn's life, basically. He was six years old when that happened. 
Well, uh, Nick, no more Trump. Let me ask you a question <laughs> first. Uh, the most important question of all. How do you pronounce the guy's name? Carlos Gozen? Yeah, I mean, so he's mostly been going by Gone. Carlos Gone uh, rhymes with Cone for, for his entire career. But in, in Lebanon, they would say Carlos Hossen. Um, so, so we can't even agree on his name. He's that character, how we pronounce yeah. his name. So very briefly, Nick. This guy, mm. whose name we can't even agree on, um, born in uh, Brazil of Lebanese origins, becomes one of the best known businessmen in the world. Give us a, yeah. a brief overview of his rise and then, of course, his famous, equally famous, if not more famous or infamous fall. Cool. Yeah. So his rise, he started a French tire company, Michelin, um, which obviously is well known, lots of, uh, you know, big in the US. Um, and very quickly, this guy um was trusted by by the ceo to, to go in into the most difficult situations every time they had a crisis they kind of sent gone and gone would just look at it and do what needed to be done he um he wasn't you know he didn't he didn't think about what what stopped him for example restructuring a unit or restructuring a company or, or putting two um two brands together or whatever he just he just looked at a problem very very clear-eyed did what needed to be done he then goes to Renault, which is, um, you know, a huge car maker in France, um, big company here. And again, did what needed to be done at Renault. Renault was, had never really been profitable. Um, people, people used to say that you paid for Renault twice in France, once at the dealership and once with your taxes. So he managed to go in there, make a lot of changes, cut costs. And then the kind of apotheosis of, of the Gohan method was the turnaround of Nissan, the, the Japanese car maker, where he is, he goes to Japan, he doesn't speak a word of Japanese. Um, this company, which obviously is a story Japanese car maker, but it's been completely mismanaged. Um, they're not, you know, they're in huge amounts of debt that they can't find any, any other, you know, they can't find investment. And Gohan goes over there and in a year, basically, turns the company around, um, you know, makes it profitable. Uh, and, and again, I, I can't stress enough, like, it's, it's such a different culture and not speaking a word of Japanese to get tens of thousands of employees like walking in the same direction is just incredibly difficult. And so he becomes probably rightly a, a, a kind of global celebrity at this stage. There are like manga comic books written about him. Um, you know, his appearance changes. He starts to like wear kind of more fitting suits. The press starts to follow him around. Yeah, um, the FT said... Um... And they're yeah. not lent for over uh, over uh, exaggerating. They said Carlos Ghosn was a leader almost like no other. Uh, of course, yeah. he is like some other true. leaders. Uh, I, I promise right. not to talk about Trump, but one can't help also thinking yeah. of Elon Musk, uh, another remarkable individual who's made his money in the car business. Are there comparisons between Ghosn and Musk? Yeah, there are comparisons between Ghosn and Musk, also because... Gone um, believed in electric vehicles very, very early on. Um, you know, 2007, 2008, he was, he was kind of touting electric vehicles. And um, now he says that he was right. And he, and he was, I guess. But when you're too early with something, you're still wrong. Um, and so he really pushed Renault and Nissan into the electric vehicle game and, and the affordable EVs. Um, both of them have kind of fallen behind, obviously, Tesla. But certainly there, there were some comparisons. And again, Elon Musk is a, is a guy who takes big risks, who's very bold, um, similar to Ghosn, who's extremely savvy with the media. So yes, definitely there are there are comparisons. And also, you know, Ghosn 
we, we used to have these kind of huge personalities in the auto industry running Chrysler or running GM, and we haven't actually seen many of them, but we, we seem to have less and less of them. Ghosn was one, Sergio Marchioni was another, but now I think the, 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 the guy who's taken over the mantle is obviously Elon Musk. He's, he's like the, the kind of larger-than-life CEO kind of striding around the auto industry. Yeah, it's funny, um, Nick. We had um, Alan yeah. Murray, one of the leading financial journalists right. around these days, on the show. He has a new book out, Tomorrow's Capitalism. Uh, Tomorrow's Capitalist. He actually suggested reading your book. Um, nice. And he acknowledges that... Um, uh, and I'm quoting Alan, he said, as someone who has yeah. spent hundreds of hours interviewing CEOs, I have a, a soft spot for Carlos Ghosn. He clearly was a remarkable, was a remarkable schmoozer. I mean, he, he, could, he, he could seduce anyone, presumably. I mean, he had he a little could, bit of Martin Sorrell in him as well. I mean, you get these men, every generation, yeah. there's a handful of them who revolutionize industries which are ready to be revolutionized. For sure. And yes, I, Martin Soros is another CEO I know well and, and appreciate. And yeah, Ghosn, I mean, look, when, when you spend some time in, in Carlos Ghosn's presence, as I, as I have been lucky enough to do, it's, you know, you, if you interview him for 45 minutes or an hour, you will not see that time go by. He's, he's extremely intense. He's very precise. He's extremely charismatic. Um, so yeah, and I think, look, the soft spot also comes... Like, if, if you take the story back to the beginning, which is what we were talking about before, he is a guy who was born in the Amazon. He is a guy who grew up basically without a father because his father was in jail, became the man of the family very early. He's a guy who then goes to France, goes to the best schools, but he's an outsider. He's from Lebanon. He's from a former French colony. So he's this perennial outsider who's got an ability to see the world differently, but he's also somebody who is a bit of an anti-hero because, because of the fact that he's an outsider. And so he, and, and he's going into these companies, for example, like Renault, who is an establishment company and doing what he needs to do to turn them around. So a lot of people rooted for Carlos Ghosn, for sure. I mean, uh, and, and I'm guessing even you yeah. now have some, some, something in your book and in your work, you still have a degree of sympathy for him. Did he have any, Definitely. you know, when we're thinking in, in Greek terms, did he have a particular Achilles heel, women, yeah. drink, drugs, um, or was he just a narcissist like Trump? Yeah, interesting. So, yeah, first of all, yes, to, to your first point, of course, I have a degree of sympathy for him. I wouldn't spend like all the hours that I've spent studying an individual who who was uninteresting. Right. He's, he's definitely an interesting person to me. I think Carlos Ghosn's Achilles heel was 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 money and being paid what he thought he was worth. I mean, his his issue is that he worked. So he he becomes which is kind of amazing, but he becomes the first CEO to run two Fortune 500 companies. So he's running Renault for two weeks of, of the month. Then he goes to Nissan and runs them for two weeks of the month. Then he flies back to Renault, runs them again. Yeah. And so, so he's making Steve Jobs before Steve Jobs or um, Jack Dorsey exactly. before Jack Dorsey. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so, but, but nobody bet against him because he'd done all these great turnarounds. So you thought, well, maybe it's possible. But the, the issue for Ghosn was that Renault is a French company and therefore they do not pay American salaries. They pay far, far less than, than American companies. And it's the same in Japan. I mean, Japanese companies do not tend to, to give out large paychecks. And so even accumulating these two paychecks, Ghosn felt that he was underpaid and he would frequently complain to his lieutenants or, or even to journalists off the record, you know, I should be making more money. I, you know, I, How I much was he making uh, in Japan or in France? I mean, in good years, he was still making 
if if you combine his paychecks, he was still making like twenty million dollars. I mean, he was the despite the fact he was only spending half his time. Which is a chopped liver, Nick. I mean, you can still. It's eat. not chopped liver. No, you live. You can live very well in Paris, and it's not as if. Yeah. I mean, everyone in Paris earns the same amount, so it's not like there's Elon Musk in Paris who he's trying to compete with. No, exactly, and I mean, he was still one of France, if not France's top paid executive. So if you combine his his paycheck in Japan is paycheck in France is still very good but he felt you know I mean obviously he could put food on the table but he felt he was underpaid for the value that he was creating and this really grated on him you know he would say look at Mary Barra at GM look at how much she made look at Sergio Marconi at Fiat look at how much he's making and I'm making less and yeah and they're crab leaders as well right exactly and he would say and and at least in his mind yeah look look at their results compared to mine you know this was the kind of thing that he, he would say and, um, well, are you are you and you acknowledged already that you have a degree of sympathy for him? Are you justifying no. this? I mean, you there's no excuse to do what he did. I mean, let's let's so let's get to the the, the, the crime yeah. or the criminality here. Is it clear Absolutely. that he broke the law, Nick? Is there any any ambiguity? Does he have a case because he clearly is denying what he's been accused of? Yeah. So first thing to say is, look, I'm not a judge, right? There hasn't been a court case because he obviously escaped um, before the courts case could happen. But he's charged with various different crimes now uh, in Japan, and he's got an international arrest warrant on his head from France. Um, So, you know, the first crime that he was arrested for is basically conspiring to 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 get paid after he retires. So defer compensation until until after he retires. And his his argument is nothing was agreed and nothing was paid. And so what he likes to do is focus on focus on this alleged crime. Right. The, the issue for him is that since then, um, there's a there's a mountain of evidence um, which seems to show that there were some bonuses going from Renault and Nissan, his two companies, bonuses that were not necessarily um, justified to a dealership in Oman. And then these bonuses would end up in his pocket. And this, you know, there was roughly 50 million dollars in bonuses between if you take Renault and Nissan. And this he has never answered satisfactorily. Why is this money, which seems to be going from the companies to Oman, and then people tied to the dealership are sending it to entities tied to him? Why is he taking this money? Was, as there, CEO a, um, Nick, was there a whistleblower yeah. within Nissan? I mean, I'm guessing it was hard to take Spirit $50 million out of a, a mm-hmm. large company like Nissan and then just dump it in Oman and get away with it. Presumably, yeah. There were people involved with what he was doing. He had accountants and advisors. Definitely. And look, that's his point. He says that the, the, the bonuses were, were justified and they were signed off by three people every time or two people. You know, that there, there was a CEO reserve form that, that was filled out and all, all the re- required signatures were there. Um, what the people who signed it say is, listen, you know, I, 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 my job was simply to look if the money was there or my job was to look if, you know, my, if, if, um, if, if the required signatures were there or whatever. So they're saying, like, we, we don't know if it was justified or not justified. Um, when the companies look at it now, they think it's strange because... Wasn't companies- there a... I mean, there must have been a CFO at Nissan. I mean, this is not the kind yeah, the- of money... This is not pocket change. This is not money used for lunches no. or dinners. No, but remember, these, these are companies that are worth billions and billions of dollars. So that's the first thing to say. And, and the CFOs, you know, when they were interviewed by law enforcement, were saying, my job is not to look at whether or not this dealership in Oman needs the bonus. My job is simply to look at the accounts and say, do we, do we have the required money in the accounts? 
yes, therefore I sign a form. Carlos Ghosn is the decision maker. If he says, you know, we need to send money to Amanda, that's, that's what we do. Um, the thing is, once he got charged by the Japanese on, on this particular topic, he then escaped. So we don't have a court case. Then the French look at it. They think that there's enough evidence to charge him. They tried to charge him. They tried to get him to France. Obviously, he wouldn't come to France. And so they issue an international arrest warrant. And so we do not have satisfactory answers from Go. But at the same yeah, time, and I mean, the obvious thing to ask, Nick, from yeah. my point of view, at least, is yeah. if he's innocent, why, why, why does he run away? I mean, he could have afforded the best lawyers. I mean, presumably this stuff can be... Yeah. If, if he is innocent and he claims it's all a misunderstanding, why didn't he just stay in Japan? Yeah, so the reason he didn't stay in Japan he says is because he felt that he couldn't get justice there. It's a it's a justice system where once you're charged, there's a 99% conviction rate. He felt like it, the whole thing was political, therefore he escaped. The, the issue that I have, and, and I think your question is a good one, is it's now been a few years since he escaped. He's had plenty of opportunity to explain himself on these bonuses to French law enforcement, to journalists, to various other people, and he hasn't taken these opportunities. He's never- He says he wanted, or he did say he wanted a trial in france um what 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 are the options yeah. of that i mean it's probably not presumably for him to choose but is that a compromise rather than going back to japan could he could he be tried in france yeah i mean look france wants to try him right this is why they've issued an international arrest warrant um so yes absolutely because the crime this whole old man crime that i've been describing is pretty much the same in japan and in france so whether he's tried in france or japan it's going to be a similar crime um but, you know, does he actually want to come to France? I, I don't know. He says he can't because Lebanon's holding his passport, because, you know, on yeah. various technicalities. But when, again, when the French judge went over to Oman, he, he, he did not answer his questions. Sorry, went over to Lebanon to, to question going. He did not answer his questions on Oman. Um, he said What's that, he, so, so just to be clear, so he, yeah. he left Japan and went to Lebanon, or was there a stop between, France, uh, between <laughs> Japan and Lebanon? Yeah, so there, there was a stop, a very brief stop, though, just to change planes. So he basically got on a plane in Osaka, flew to Istanbul, and then um, changed planes and then flew to Beirut. So and he uh, and he's a Lebanese. He, he has a Lebanese passport. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it was kind of obviously going to Lebanon is a smart idea because he has a Lebanese passport, is a Lebanese citizen, and Lebanon does not extradite its citizens. So... It's not going to ex extradite him to, to, to Japan. It's also not going to, they're not going to extradite him to France. And so actually, right now, prosecutors and Carlos Ghosn, they're in this kind of holding pattern, right? Where Ghosn is an international fugitive. He can't clear his name. He can't go back to his former life. At the same time, prosecutors can't get him to trial. So what happens, you know, is it the end of the story? Well, it's certainly not the end of the story. Um, <laughs> yeah. Trump, of course, has Latita James is going after him. Um, my wife is yeah. a black lawyer, says you never want a female black lawyer to go after you. Um, are there particular judges or lawyers in the world going after Gone now? Uh, Letitia James, who, who, whose whole career is based on, on, on realizing some justice in this case? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the case that is probably moving the most right now is the one in France to do with Oman, right? France or, or French prosecutors believe that that Ghosn kind of stole, I guess, $15 million, which he rerouted through Oman and into his pocket. And so in Japan, you, you, you don't have trials in absentia. In France, you do. And so it's possible that even if Ghosn doesn't turn up, that they're just going to take this case to trial anyway. 
and and try him in absentia. So I think that's maybe looking the most likely. I mean, you know, a trial without the main defendant is never what people want. But at the same time, I don't see really any other option. And, you know, the judge that has so far in France been investigating this, you have investigative magistrates here. He's, you know, he's he's very well known in this country for, for investigating financial crime. He's a guy called Serge Tournaire. And um, he's gone after some some big fish in the past. Um, he's actually about to he's about to retire. So I don't know that he's st- he'll still be. Uh, around I'm guessing he, he certainly in terms of public opinion, he, Carlos yeah. Ghosn is not going to find a particularly sympathetic audience in France who will certainly go after a man like that more than they would yeah. perhaps in the United States. Yeah, possibly. But I think also you know public opinion in France. Um, Whilst, whilst the French are always a little bit careful of people with money, um, you know, there, there, there's still a certain sympathy for Ghosn, or there was a certain sympathy. But I think there's also a realisation now that Ghosn has been saying, I'm innocent, I'm innocent for, for three years, but hasn't really explained away this, this Oman stuff. And, and, and yes, he, he, he managed quite successfully to discredit the Japanese justice system. But when the French issue arrest warrants, international arrest warrants, it's not because they have zero evidence, right? It's because they feel like there are some questions to be answered. And so I think public opinion is, is becoming less and less sympathetic as time goes by and thinks like, you know, if he was innocent, well, maybe he'd have explained this stuff by now. Right, Nick. So you've done a lot of research for mm. this book. Um, your yeah, co-author as nice. well, Sean McLean, also is at the yeah. journal. He's going to be on the show next week. What have you yeah. found? What have you broken in this story that wasn't already known? I mean, look, a lot of the Oman stuff that I'm talking about um, is is new. Nobody has told that story so far. And, um, you know, in some ways, this is also the book of a trial that hasn't that hasn't happened yet and that people don't know. Um, so when you say new, I mean, we knew that the money ended yeah. up in Oman. What have you broken on the Oman front? I think we've broken like the details of, you know, I mean, we, we broke a lot of this story back back when it happened in the Wall Street Journal anyway. But in this book, we kind of show, you know, with that money, he bought a yacht. We show how the yacht ended up in his name. Um, we show, you know, how these bonuses were made to him. We This this 50 million figure that I'm giving you between Renault and, and uh, Nissan of, 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 you know, kind of questionable bonuses, I think is new. Um, so... On the Oman front, there's a, there's a ton of new stuff, which are the, the most serious allegations against Ghosn. And again, I think one of the questions that a lot of people have about Ghosn is, is he guilty? Is he not guilty? Again, I'm, I'm not a judge. I'm surprised that he did it in Oman, which again, excuse this term, always yeah. seems to be just about the most kosher of Gulf states. Why, why did he do it all through Oman? Well, so the, the guy who owns the dealership in Oman is, um, is a guy called Sheikh Suhal Bawan, who now also has a French arrest warrant on his head, um, and who became a personal friend of Ghosn. Um, he admired Ghosn. Ghosn also, you know, was a guy from Lebanon, an Arabic speaker, who, who headed um, Nissan, you know, a, a really big, well-known global company. And so, you know, um, Suhal Bawan kind of went, and met Ghosn when Ghosn was head, head of Nissan and said, look, I want to sell Nissan cars in the Middle East. I want to sell Nissan cars in Oman. The two became very close. Families would hang out together. And so, you know, again, what prosecutors believe is that um, because of their personal connection, it was far easier to go through Suhar Bawan. Now, Suhar Bawan is, a, is also a self-made billionaire, um, the kind of person that Ghosn really respects, um, who came from absolutely nothing, more or less illiterate, and who built this, you know, enormous fortune, this huge conglomerate 
which yes sells Renault and Nissans, but that's actually a small part of what he does. He does all this other stuff. Um, and so that, you know, it's the personal, the personal connection between these two men um, that maybe led him to, to do what he did for him. So in, in Lebanon, um, which is obviously another incredibly complex country, I assume that God yeah. is, is, is Maronite um, or from Maronite origins. Is he, Correct. and I also assume he has massive military protection. Is he living like a warlord or under the auspices of a warlord? Interesting. I, I mean, what I can tell you is that he's living in a house that was purchased for him by Nissan for something like $18 million. Um, and that Nissan is trying to evict him, has been trying to evict him ever since his escape. They haven't, they haven't managed to do it. So that's another cool case. Um, and what I can tell you is that he has at least, you know, he has a bodyguard and he's been, he basically I'm sure he has more than one bodyguard. I mean, presumably yeah. that it must have occasionally occurred to Japanese or French prosecutors to seize him, bring him back. I don't know, it's tough for, for a state to, um, to act like that with, when a company doesn't, doesn't extradite his existence. But what I can say is that Carlos Ghosn was worried about it. I remember speaking to Ghosn in the wake of his escape and then, and then, and then subsequently, and, and I know that after his escape, some Japanese people moved in across the road and he would tell me, look, I'm really worried about what they want. And I'm worried about, you know, the fact that I escape and maybe they'll snatch me and take me back. And so, yeah, he had a bodyguard. Last time I saw him, he still had the same bodyguard after all these years and who goes around with him everywhere he goes. Um, you know, he's also got, for example, one of his, his main lawyer is extremely well connected in Lebanon. And one of the main things to do you know, when Carlos going initially escaped was to kind of build this shield around him and, and make sure that he was friends with the right people and that, you know, that, that, that there was no enmity against him. And so I think he's had to do some of that. He, you know, he, he, Has he seen, I'm uh, assuming within Lebanon itself, he's seen by some people within the community, at least sympathetically as this romantic yeah. hero fleeing the injustice Definitely. of Japan or France. Yeah, so some people see him as this romantic hero and also like a symbol of Lebanese success, right? Uh, that he made it to the, to the top, top of the business world, top of the Davos Jess set through his hard work. But he's also seen by many people in the country as a symbol of everything that's wrong with Lebanon and the corrupt elite who just, you know, use shell And a stateless system which is sort of fragmented into different warlords and mafias. And, I, and I'm assuming, Nick, that he is public enemy number one in Japan and conforms to some of their perhaps racial or cultural stereotypes. How has this whole thing gone down in Japan? Yeah, great question. I mean, yes, I think Japan is still, they are incredibly angry about his escape. Obviously, going said he would appear in court, didn't, made them look stupid. Um, and I think they will never let this go. You know, they, they spent they hours- being the Japanese legal system, the culture, the press. Yeah, I think all of the all of the above, but but also, you know, Japanese prosecutors. Like I think very importantly because they spent a lot of resources, many many hours on, um, you know, trying to bring Gone to justice. And Gone hasn't been shy to point out everything that's wrong with that justice system, right? And um, you know, he's been all over TV. He's he's written books, like basically being like the face, the the person that wants to break their justice system, which. You know, we can say whatever we or think whatever we want to think in the West, but but they kind of they justify it and they say that they have less crime and that you know it's a it's a cultural thing, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think they they will never let it go. They they're really angry. 
Um, what but, can but, they do? But very briefly, Nick, you're not an expert on the yeah. Japanese legal system. You yeah. said that most most trials, most cases that come to trial end in prosecution. Does that necessarily reflect a bad system? In some ways, it might reflect a very healthy system where they only try people who are guilty. Yeah, I mean, this is this is what they'd answer. Is that they they're very cautious. Well, what's your what take? Is. I mean, you've done a lot of thinking and research here. Yeah? I mean, look, my take is that obviously one of the biggest surprises for me of, of covering this story was the Japanese justice system, and that you know initially when Gone was arrested, um, he was disappeared from the world. Basically, we didn't hear of, from him for three weeks. They kind of split the charges, they split the time periods, they kept him in jail, more or less in solitary confinement. It was extremely, extremely tough for, you know, the first charge is essentially um, is, a, is a small, it's, it's not a huge thing. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a kind of a, it's a disclosure violation. So I was, I was shocked at how, how tough it was, me, me personally, right? At the same time, I'm, you know, you look at, you look at crime in Japan, it's very low. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a society that functions well. Um, and, and this is, you know, I think we have to stay humble and remember that it's a different culture um, and that living in France, um, we have, and, and also in the US, you know, we have a ton of problems with our justice systems too. So, you know, they, they argue that it works for yeah, them. Yeah, and I mean, it wouldn't probably have been that different had it happened in Singapore or certainly in China. No, exactly. Well, I mean, in like China, he would have just yeah. disappeared forever and we never would have heard from him again. <laughs> Exactly. But this is also what Go uses and says, oh, look, it's similar to the Chinese system or the North Korean system. Um, it's, you know, it, it's obviously for us in the West, it's not something that we that we are used to, for sure. Um, at the same time, again, they, they are cautious. They tend to go after, um, you know, nailed on cases. And yes, it's very difficult for the defense. Um, they're often pressured towards a confession. You know, I do think that there has to be you know, maybe, maybe that system has to has to be looked at a bit. And I think there's been a bit of a reckoning in Japan since this case happened. Um, but I think like the, the problem for Gon is that since since the Oman charges came out, um, it's very difficult to argue that this was all a setup and there was nothing going on. So the Oman charges is that they found the money and it's clear that he did transport $50 million out of Japan to Oman. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that he has questions to answer. That, that's how I would put it. Has Again, he, uh, has he responded? The book's just come out, Nick. Has he um, mm. emailed you? Uh, have you talked to him at all? Not since the book came out, no. Obviously, I sent him a request for comment, um, you know, laying out the kind of facts in the book, and his lawyers responded to that, uh, you know, as is as Did is you normal. ask for a blurb? I did not ask for a blurb, no. Um, <laughs> I did not ask for a blurb. I mean, look, Carlos Ghosn has put his own book out, uh, which is his side of the story. And obviously, our book is is very different to, to his side of the story. Yeah, so. I mean, yeah, your your <laughs> um, your friend John Carreyrou, who's best-selling author of Bad Blood, calls it the book a Greek tragedy. I mean, yeah. I don't really see. I don't know what's Greek about it, and I don't really see why it's a tragedy. The guy was a criminal, or is a criminal, seems to me. What's mm. tragic about this? He's living in Lebanon probably yeah. in a luxury house, not paying any rent, squatting <laughs> off a company that he appropriated $50 million for. Where's the tragedy here, Nick? Well, I think, like, look, in Greek tragedy, like, usually you have you have individuals who are... Um, Shubristic. Who are very, 
yeah, hubristic. But, but before that, they're usually very capable. They have admirable qualities um, often. Um, and then they have a tragic flaw. And I think that was Carlos Ghosn, that he had many admirable qualities. He, he did many good things. Um, he, was, he was great in, in certain ways. But tragically, he had this flaw, I guess this hubris, um, that led to his own fall. I think you know, one of the biggest victims of Carlos Ghosn is Carlos Ghosn. And also led to this trail of destruction whereby, you know, the people that helped him out of Japan are now in jail, basically swap places with him. You know, his family has been caught up in the criminal chain, uh, charges. Lots yeah, of people I mean, we haven't mentioned his family. So many innocents. Does yeah. he have uh, how many ex-wives, Nick? Just one ex-wife, one current wife. And how many children? He has four children with his ex-wife. Um, yeah, so that's tragic, I guess, Innocence Court. Um, but it's a fascinating yeah. story. Uh, we're actually going to talk with your co-author, Sh Sean McLean, next week. I'm not sure what else there is to say. But uh, your new yeah. book, Costov uh, and McLean's book, Boundless, The Rise, Fall, and Escape of Carlos Ghosn. Uh, you don't pronounce it Gozen. Ghosn uh, is just out. Congratulations, Nick, on this and on a, such, I think, a an honest uh, account of, 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 of the case and of your attitude towards him. Uh, I think it's a central reading, particularly for those of us concerned with the morality, the future of capitalism. Uh, what else have you been reading, Nick, these days? Anything else good on your bookshelf? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, I mean, one book I've been reading, The World for Sale, um, I'm trying to remember. So it was Javier Blas. I'm trying to remember his co-author. Yeah, so it's Jack, part of Jack the dirty Carson. money um, literature. Yeah, exactly. But it's also like it's, it's become very interesting since the sanctions on Russia. Um, it's kind of the story about these commodity traders um, who trade mm. like food, oil, you know, precious metals, and um, these kind of firms that maybe we didn't know a ton about, but who, who just made enormous, enormous profits. Um, very, very well reported and uh, very, very well told and super interesting. Um, yeah, it's interesting that uh, Gohn, the story has nothing to do with Russia, nothing to do with Putin, nothing to do with the KGB, and he yeah. didn't even end up in Moscow. <laughs> um, no, but he did buy Russia's largest car maker, Lada, um, <laughs> when, when he was at Renault. And actually, Renault have just had to basically give it away to the Russian state for one ruble. So that was not, not, not the best move in, in retrospect. But um, yeah, he, he actually negotiated with Vladimir Putin for that deal. So um, there is a tiny bit of Putin in our book. 